Poland was like kind of European capital of tango, and in Poland, a very different kind of tango was created. It was not much in common with Argentinian tango. Those computers look completely different. They basically look like giant tubes, which are attached to the to the ceiling. You have to make them very, very cold, like absolute zero temperature almost in Kelvins, and also cut off from the gravitational waves. Uh, it is a new idea because we renovated the museum, but we also renovate the, cons- the idea of, of, of the museum. Poland, uh, things that come to mind, not a whole lot, no. Probably not a whole lot. Uh, Polish sausages? No, I don't know anything about that country. Poland? Sausages. <laughs> Pierogies? Is that it? We hope it's not. That's what we're going to try to show you. Welcome to Polcast. And all that jazz. I'm Małgorzata Bonikowska. And I'm Tomek Kniat. Welcome to the 57th episode of Polcast. For the first time, this episode is partly brought to you by our supporters. That's right. After two years, responding to suggestions from some of you, our listeners and contributors, we've started our crowdfunding campaign. Why? Our podcast, the award-winning first-ever English-language podcast about Poland and Poles around the world, has... Featured well over a hundred stories, promoting exciting things that Poles around the world do, and surprising connections to the world with Poland. Received four journalistic awards from Canada to Poland and Austria. Through podcast, people around the world learn fascinating things about Poland its culture, customs, geography, history, language, as well as about amazing Poles around the world. No politics. Well, unfortunately, what is free for you to listen to is not free for us to make. And the reality is we need your financial support. Thanks to your help, we'll be able to continue producing high-quality content, buy the necessary equipment, pay for the servers, etc., etc., and keep finding these amazing people connected to Poland and show their great work. You can help us with your monthly pledge, just like PBS or TVO. Just imagine that you take one of us for a coffee once a month, or for lunch, maybe for a drink, well, dinner, just once a month. Instead, please declare this amount to help us grow podcast. And some of you have already done it, so this is the time I thank our first awesome supporters. Iwona Kaniak, Marzena and Roman Wiktorowicz, Iwona Malinowski, Wanda Kościa, Maggie Habieda, Natasha, and I have no idea how to pronounce your name, so I'll just <laughs> improvise. Kelvenek. Okay, let me just spell it. Q U E L V E N N E C. Thank you, Natasha. Well, Natasha will have a glass of Bordeaux for you. <laughs> yeah, that's right. She's from France. She's right there. And Ron Davis, thank you very much. Thank you, thank you. And if you want to join us in promoting Polish culture, history, and great work of interesting Poles around the world, because Poland and Poles need good publicity now more than ever. And if you want to hear your name at the beginning of our next episode, please visit our Patreon page at mypolkas.com slash support. You can find all the information about our crowdfunding campaign on our website, mypolcast.com.
As our listeners well know, Polish-Jewish issues are very close to our hearts. We have featured on Polcast numerous such stories. One of them was the 2016 Ashkenaz Festival. This one-week festival, organized every two years in Toronto, is one of the largest and most prestigious showcases of Jewish music and culture anywhere in the world. The name comes from Ashkenazi Jews, Ashkenazim, Jews from Central and Eastern Europe whose mother tongue is Yiddish. This year's festival featured artists from across Canada and around the world, including Israel, Russia, Italy, Australia, Brazil, the U.S., and Poland. I attended one of the two concerts by a mesmerizing singer, Olga Mieleszczuk, and her incredible band of the best tango musicians from Poland, Hadrian Tabenski, Grzegorz Bożewicz, and Piotr Malicki. Olga, born in Poland, converted into Judaism and now lives and works in Jerusalem. The show focused on songs from the 1930s and 1940s, popular in Warsaw and Palestine, composed by Polish-Jewish composers and sung in Yiddish, Polish and Hebrew, with special emphasis on tangos. For one song, Bal Nagnoyne, Olga was joined by Ron Davis, renowned Toronto jazz musician and the grandson of the legendary owner of this famous pre-war Warsaw restaurant immortalized in the song. We featured Ron's story and music on podcast. I spoke to Olga after the enthusiastically received show. So we've just finished this amazing concert. Tell me, how, how was it for you? Uh, I'm very happy everything uh, went well because it was a lot of uh, stress before because our main player, bandoneon player, didn't arrive on time. <laughs> they they supposed to, to, to fly together uh, directly from Warsaw to Toronto and just he called me two days ago at six o'clock that he missed a flight and actually had an accident and uh, all kinds of things. And we decided uh, very quickly that had to he had to buy a new ticket and he found on the last ticket uh, via Kiev and uh, oh, and then he arrived here just two uh, two hours before the concert and he couldn't find the suitcase it took some long time and in the suitcase he have uh, make microphones and discs oh, and in the end he arrived. Uh, Uh, in the last moment... This is your first visit to Canada, right? Not really. <laughs> It's my second. Okay. But I I was five years ago participating in Chutzpah Festival in Vancouver, but ah. I've never been in uh, Montreal, Toronto. So this trip now was first Montreal and now Toronto, is that it? Uh, first Class Canada, which is near Montreal, is in Brit Camp, and then... We, we had uh, Class Canada after party in Montreal and then I arrived to Toronto and it's my first concert in Toronto and the second will come. That's right, the second one on Sunday, right? That's your Polesia thing. Yes. It's special because you've got somebody that that actually belongs to the family, yes? The... Not somebody, like at least 20 people <laughs> from the Mariam Nirenberg uh, Uh, family is coming and she's um, the Jewish folk singer from Bay from Toronto but she was born in borderland of Poland in Polesia and uh, I was uh, I reviving her songs from her repertoire folk songs uh, most of them they are very old uh, Yiddish ballads which were written before the first world war she was multi lingual uh, singer so I sing also in uh, not only in Yiddish, also in Ukrainian in Polish mm -hmm. and Russian and some mixed languages songs. Wow, that's going to be a special one. But today was different, right? Today you concentrated mostly on tangos with these amazing musicians talk about these musicians, they, I know they came all the way from Poland, but how did you guys connect? I've connected firstly with Hadrian Tabensky with the pianist he's also arranger composer uh, and the leader of uh, of the band that they created the tango band Argentinian and Polish tango but we firstly met uh, in very special project of uh, Yiddish spiel like a uh, little Yiddish fiat purim purim uh, piece uh, and he was uh, uh, 
he was uh, playing uh, the music and I was actually performing once and the last time probably uh, <laughs> uh, that I was I've got some um, act actor role as uh, Joseph actually the male role we, we were performing it in uh, Oslo mm. and it was only once one performance and uh, mm. and then but when we started to cooperate and uh, we made uh, a project Lila Law we made it together we 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 made a records of this project and then uh, naturally tango if you play in polish jewish music of 30s naturally you will connect with tango because this was the most popular mm-hmm. dance and uh, it is 3000 pieces of tango were written in poland in the interwar period so that poland was like kind of european capital of tango and in poland a very different kind of tango was created it was not much in common with argentinian tango it was much more lyrical and uh, with steady rhythm and they used a different um, the uh, actually violin was very important and mm-hmm. And it was like a Slavic Jewish uh, combination mixture uh, because mm-hmm. most of the songwriters and composers of tango were Jewish. Right, right. Now let let me ask you some questions about your life. And your life itself is a story. A girl brought up in a Catholic family. How did you convert? How did you? What made you do what you did? And what made you choose this path? the essence of uh, of the the whole transition actually came from music i actually started to sing in yiddish i didn't sing before in any other language and uh, so that was your first language in which you sang was yiddish yes. but how come why uh, i i was in a sp- in a gather- special gathering in auschwitz like for f- five days it was organized by american organization of um, peacemakers and it was It gathered mostly from American Jews and Israeli people and some Poles and uh, also some Germans. Some of them, they, they had in families um, perpetrators and uh, we were like sitting together in meditation and we made some special uh, rituals from different religions to, uh, to make a tikkun, like healing uh, of the place. And over there uh, I was going with the group of uh, with Hasidic rabbi that was sing uh, was singing and I started to sing over there and then we have a long story you know that because it takes many many years till I got the conversion from Auschwitz it took uh, I, I think six seven years so mm-hmm. it's the whole cycle of uh, coming closer to uh, to Jewish culture to Jewish religion to Israel and to his uh, to the land of Israel also. did you have many did you have many Jewish friends in those days was that part of the influence or was it reading mostly what made you come closer or is it art no I didn't have uh, in Poland I didn't have uh, Jewish friends at all I uh, but after Auschwitz I, I I went to Israel and I uh-huh. felt really very strong connection to the place and to people and over there I my, my like Jewish uh, life started how long have you been living in jerusalem six years mm-hmm. how, how is the life there how do you feel there do you feel this is your home i cannot i, I cannot say it anymore like i, I cannot say it uh, i don't i don't have home uh, <laughs> you know like not every convert probably but uh, a lot of converts maybe they are a little bit like outsiders because they are between awards and i don't feel rooted anywhere um And are you happy? Sometimes. <laughs> Especially when I'm singing, I'm the most happy, I think. Now, you're, you, when you're singing, you sing in outside Israel. Do you also perform in Israel? Yeah, but uh, uh, it's very different uh, kind of performances. Or it's very um, offstage, very little and intimate performances. Or it's like a very part of some much more simple and uh, um, well-known popular Yiddish songs and mm-hmm. the Israeli audience they don't like the Yiddish songs it's hard for them to deal with the Yiddish culture you know and uh, because of the holocaust because of the holocaust because of the uh, it's connected to ultra orthodox world and it's like so painful that they uh, it's hard for them to stand uh, 
Ashkenazi cultures are not connected to this place. The, not many people have nostalgia for this. Uh, mm-hmm. So are you the only artist that uh, like performs that kind of music or wants to perform that kind of music in Israel? Or is there is there like a group of people who want to revive this music and show it to them? And I don't know, make them feel comfortable and, 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 and love it again? No, there are uh, more people, but... Uh, um, a lot of them, they have the same problems like me, especially with Yiddish, uh, because klezmer music is much more popular, and uh, there are some revival of klezmer music, and also klezmers are invite. They are u- useful. They they are going to play on the weddings and uh, mm-hmm. bar mitzvahs, and mm-hmm. and but Yiddish, it's uh, Yiddish is much less uh, have a, a place uh, in uh, in culture in Israel. Like it's a uh, it's a kind of ex- excluded mm-hmm. from this multicultural pot. Uh, my main interest, actually, it's like the music of the Polish Jews of thirties. It's also Yiddish, but it's uh, it's also Polish because mm-hmm. uh, Jews were very involved in popular Polish culture, and mm-hmm. so it's uh, it has different layers. If I, if I may ask, you know, you being a person that converted. Have you been accepted by by the by the community there fully? They treat you as one of their own, or is it, or do you still feel that you're an outsider? No, I'm fully accepted by the community. And when you converted, was that a problem for people from Poland? No, I, I was accepted because my conversion it was not going with kind of that. I didn't start to make distance with people and avoid them, and you know, like. Uh, create some barriers like of course there is they know that there are different rules and now you know I'm not I'm able to uh, go on Friday night to, to the party so but uh, we are not mature enough to, to accept different uh, styles of life to different people maybe they was a bit strange for them in the beginning but most of my close friends accept it. What do you do in Jerusalem on a daily basis? Artistic musical career is what you do for a living? Yes, for a living I'm a musician. But actually it's not full-time. It's my full-time job last few years. It's to be a mother of small children. But when, I, when I'm between... Between children. <laughs> and I'm finding some time to, to perform and to create new projects. Do you perform in Poland as well? A lot. No, I'm coming uh, regularly to Poland. I have uh, also another band which I, what I'm connected to, and you know, and I love those musicians uh, so much that you know, it's like a pleasure to. It's not a work. It's like just fun to to be able to play with them. And, uh, and what do you play? Do you play the same kind of music, the like the yeah. tango thirties? Yeah, and uh, sometimes uh, there is this urban project, there is a shtetl project, but with shtetl is usually with different musicians. And uh, I've uh, made new project with one with bandoneon player, who is also accordion player. We play Warsaw folklore. And where do you come from in Poland? From Warsaw, from Old Prague. Oh, this no. is the place where the folklore was born. more about Olga Mileszczuk, please visit our website at mypolcast.com. Poland is a metric country which uses the Celsius system for measuring temperature, but Poland has celebrated the inventor of the other temperature scale by erecting 
a Fahrenheit monument in the Polish city of Gdańsk. Why? Well, this is where Daniel Gabriel Fahrenheit was born in 1686. His father was a merchant, and he took his son with him on his trading missions. Both his parents died when Daniel was only 16. They ate poisonous mushrooms. Although he worked for an Amsterdam merchant, he had great passion for science. He started performing experiments and corresponding with the most talented scientists. He created his own temperature scale in 1724. The Gdansk Fahrenheit monument displays an antique thermometer to commemorate Daniel Fahrenheit. Both temperature scales are based on freezing and boiling points of water. Anders Celsius proposed to separate those two temperatures by 100 degrees and Daniel Fahrenheit by 180 degrees. But where did the 32 degrees Fahrenheit come from? Daniel Fahrenheit decided to start his scale from the lowest temperature he recorded during his research in Gdańsk in winter of 1708 and 09, and that was approximately 32 degrees Fahrenheit below freezing. I can never understand Fahrenheit, although my family lives in the States and constantly says something about I don't know how many degrees, but I mean, I, I can't figure it well, out. Can you? When we came to Canada, obviously the stove in the kitchen was had a scale in Fahrenheit. Fahrenheit and my yeah, wife said, yeah. oh, well, I won't be able to bake because it's so difficult. And I said, honey, it is simple. 40 minutes later... Oh, 40 minutes later. Okay, well, but you know what? That's different. You have the time to think. But when t somebody tells you, you know, your family or friend from the States, that's the temperature, and they say whatever. I, I can't even tell you what they say because I can never figure it out. It's you know what? To me, it's just like a different language. No, I know, but the, but I don't have the, the... You know, I think it's different with the language, though. I don't know. Maybe, maybe I don't know. Because math is a different language. Uh a scientific hmm. language. So when we when we talk, when we converse in English, we tend to think in English. So then, when we are talking about temperatures in Fahrenheit, we know that minus that thirty-two or zero degrees is really really cold. When zero in Celsius is more or less okay. Yeah, no, that's true. That's true. That's true. Anyway, so it is a matter of of learning the language of Fahrenheit rather than trying to convert it to Celsius every time you hear the number. That is true. But on the other hand, it's really weird that one country would be so persistent and stick to this Fahrenheit, where the whole world, like the whole world, is like almost exclusively Celsius. Well, they make their car. The, the American cars are made in metric system. Oh, here we go. Anyway. <laughs> Fahrenheit, see the monument, a Fahrenheit monument in Gdańsk, a place where you would probably never ever expect to find something like that. Very interesting. When I was in Poland in June, I attended the official opening of the Museum of Warsaw also referred to as the Museum of Things, located in a number of beautiful historic buildings right in the old town market square. Out of 300,000 original items in the museum's collection, over 7,000 were selected to be exhibited in 21 thematic rooms, such as Room of Mermaids, of Warsaw Monuments, Room of Postcards, of Silverware, of Portraits, of Photographs, Room of Medals, Warsaw Clocks, Clothing, and many, many more. Beautifully displayed, these objects bore witness to the city's tumultuous history. Here is my conversation with one of the museum curators, Lena Viherkiewicz. We're talking in one of the museum's 21 rooms. The museum actually opened in two phases, right? It did not open at the same time. Yes. Why was that? Because of some technical problems in financial. It was a great uh, effort for us, huge effort, um, to uh, renovate the buildings and to work uh, on the exhibition. And it was very complicated. That's why the director um, decided to divide the opening into parts. So the main exhibit was opened last week? Yes. <laughs> How popular was the first weekend? Uh, quite popular. As far as I know, uh, 6,000 people visit museum during these two days. So it is 
quite a lot. That's quite a lot. This is an amazing place because it actually is situated in a number of beautiful old historic buildings. What is the special character because of the fact that you have this whole block? In yes, fact, it's a block, block of buildings, right? Mm -hmm. uh, yes. Uh, actually, the buildings were renovated, rebuilt after the Second World War. But uh, the history goes back to the Middle Ages, the, the time when uh, Warsaw as a city was founded. But of course the buildings were rebuilt uh, during the Renaissance, the Baroque, so the architectural details and uh, the interiors are of different styles. And, uh, and as I said, they were rebuilt after the Second World War because Warsaw was completely destroyed. Especially this part of the city, right? Yes. The old town. Yes. How badly was it destroyed for those that don't know? Mm -hmm. 80%, 90%, it depends on the place, but the city center almost disappeared. Right. How long did it take to renovate those buildings, to rebuild, in fact, the old town? The renovation started in uh, 1945, just after the liberation. Uh, and it lasted um, till the end of the 50s. But it was dif uh, different in different parts of the old town. Mm -hmm. um, here, the, the, the buildings of World Museum uh, is now located, uh, were uh, finished uh, in 1954. In 1955, the museum was well opened, so it was just after the... Just the first beginning, the yes. beginning when you yes. had just very few... <laughs> Exhibit pieces, yes. right? Yes. Now you are over what, three hundred thousand? Yes, but the collection is growing. We are still wow. gathering new things. We are still buying. Who funds this whole project? Is that the local government? Uh, yes, uh, but also we had funds uh, from, from the European Union mm -hmm. and the, um, Norway. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about the museum itself because it's very special. They say it's the museum of things. <laughs> what does that mean? Uh, it is a new idea because we renovated the museum, but we also renovate the, cons the idea of the museum. Mm -hmm. uh, we are a historical museum, but in a very special sense. We somehow reread the history. We want to concentrate on the objects because the objects, the relics, the items are the only uh, witness of, of history. Mm, where, so. do, where do you get them from? There are different ways. Of course, we are buying things, but also uh, we have some donations from institutions, but also from the private people. A lot of our objects come from the private collections, uh, or um, there are simply objects connected with people. Uh, we have some donations of collectors also. Mm -hmm. uh, for instance, we show here on the exhibition the Ludwig Otzel Room, which is a collection of a private collector who was interested in uh, no uh, November Uprising. He collected objects connected with this historical mm -hmm. event. And we also have the Schiele Room, the, the room connected with Schiele family. Sure. They were uh, the owners of the brewery. You organized the collection or the whole exhibit into these rooms, right? Yes. How many rooms are there? Uh, now we have 21, plus uh, two additional connected with the history of the buildings and the um, statistic data. So 21 rooms of different objects. You were personally responsible for one of them, which was actually one of the ones that I liked the most. Together with my colleague uh, Małgorzata Berezowska, we are the curators of uh, Warsaw Packagings, the room that uh, presents uh, different packagings of the products which were produced here in Warsaw. What's your oldest? The oldest is the, from the beginning of the 20th century, maybe the end of 19th century. Uh, but the core collection, um, these are the objects um, from the time between the wars. What kind of things? Packagings of what? Uh, mostly grocery products, and uh, among them uh, from the chocolate uh, industry. Which was very strong in Warsaw. Yes, mm -hmm. yes. Some of the companies still exist, like uh, Werder, for instance, but of course after some transformation, political and financial, but the name still exists. Mm -hmm. But also the others, like uh, like Fuchs, like Rardelli, like Fuziński. But we also have some packagings of other products like milk, beer bottles, uh, some alcoholic mm -hmm. beverages, but also uh, after uh, packagings of tobacco products. Uh. There's also a beautiful room, and I don't remember exactly mm -hmm. what it was called, but it, it's all these objects that come with a history. Relics. Relics, that's yes. right. That's That was an amazing idea. So yes. each object in this room comes with its own amazing story. Uh, it's beautiful, but it's connected to our painful history.
as for mm-hmm. instance like the piece of cloth uh, made by a woman uh, for his child identification like name of her son age and in case he dies yes right. during the war yes so things like that but mm-hmm. also we have a little plate signed by Pablo Picasso when he was oh, here really? in war so uh-huh. uh, he stayed in Bristol Hotel so there is his signature there. yes uh, what are you most proud of or what do you think is the most important thing in this museum for you Well, it's a very difficult question I know. because <laughs> I still uh, discover new things. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, I like uh, some of the uh, objects in, in package in the room. packaging your yes. own your own place. <laughs> yes. Yeah, mm-hmm. I like the little box, uh, confectionery box designed by um, uh, Tadeusz Gronowski, one of the most important Polish designer um, from the period of, between the wars. It is a little thing, but very well designed, very nice. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, of course, like some uh, clothes from the room of clothes, like the empire dress, white empire dress, and this uh, one uh, little shoe, green shoe, of uh, the lady from the uh, beginning of 19th century. But it's also quite interesting that a lot of these things were preserved despite the war, right? Yes. A lot of things were preserved. They come from the 19th century. How did this happen? How did these people <laughs> keep them? Uh, we also wonder how it happens because we know the, how the history was very stormy, very mm-hmm. full of wars. It was the, I think, because of the people, they wanted to preserve these things. Yeah. For me, this um, whole exhibition is has very in, important emotional impact. We feel this. I remember uh, during the opening, a lady came to me and she told me that she feels here the atmosphere of uh, many hands that, that held the objects, mm-hmm. looked at the objects. Yeah. That's exactly how I felt. Mm-hmm. I thought about all these people who are around. Because yes, each yeah. object has been touched and yes, moved. And, and Yes, yeah. it, it was hidden somewhere to yeah. be preserved. Uh, like some uniforms that presented in this uh, room of relics. Uh, some paintings also were... So, uh, in, in spite of this, that we don't see the people, we feel their presence. And I think this is the, the strongest impact here. To learn more about this beautiful museum of Warsaw, the Museum of Things, please visit our website at mypolcast.com. Nothing ever makes us at Polcast happier than presenting to you young, super gifted Poles who do things that very few people have done before, who do that in Poland, but reach out to the world. Youth, talent and innovation, vision and passion. That's what we love to feature on Polcast and share with our listeners in 112 countries around the world. Witold Kowalczyk and Przemysław Chojecki are the founders of Bohr Technology and the brains behind this innovative startup company. Bohr Technology works on creative ideas behind new revolutionary quantum computers, which apparently in the next 10 years may start replacing classic computers for the purpose of solving optimization problems. Bohr Technology is now entering the North American market. I reached Vitek and Przemek in Warsaw. So it was great pleasure to find information about you and your innovative startup company, Bohr Technology, based in Warsaw and now coming to North America, starting with our Canadian market. So what I want to know first is how you guys, both of you, got to where you are today. Przemek. Yeah, so, so my background is in pure mathematics. I basically did a PhD in mathematics in France. Then I was uh, in the UK, in Oxford for two years, working as a research fellow at a university. Uh, and I was doing very abstract mathematics. So 
after getting back to Poland, after those two years in the UK, I, I got back to Poland two years ago. My domain of mathematics was very abstract and very hard. So actually there was like around two to 300 people around the world who could understand what I was doing. I slowly started to shift into new technologies uh, because I was not satisfied with how much influence I have by doing pure mathematics. Right now with uh, Bohr, we can still do very hard things regarding science, which are very similar to what I did before, but have much more influence on markets and uh, life in general. Okay, how about you, Vitek? Uh, so my story is slightly different, although the reasons are very similar. Uh, I have a legal background. I studied law here in Warsaw and also in Paris. I traveled a bit, uh, worked in different places in Luxembourg and the U.S. during some, some internships. And by the end of my legal studies, I also kind of decided to not pursue a legal career, mostly because I didn't feel that I could have enough of an impact on, on the world on, or on whatever. Um, and I decided to shift more towards business, towards new technologies. And in particular, I got very much interested with artificial intelligence and the opportunities that it offers for the future of the world. And then one of the fields which, which we came to find very interesting and very uh, promising was quantum computing and designing new software and algorithms for quantum computers. And the, the whole uh, technology is at a very early stage. It's kind of like personal computers in the 1970s. And so we feel there is a very big impact that we can make with, with the solutions that we're developing. And also, you know, part, we are part of a very, I would say, still niche and, and, and small ecosystem of very pioneering startups, companies, and, and researchers working on that area. So it is a very exciting uh, venture to be, to be developing. Quantum computers. That's what you guys do. Yes. I am a total lay person. In very simple terms, what are they? <laughs> That's a tough one, right? That's a tough one. That's a tough one. Yeah. Yeah. So basically, classical computers are based on bits. So one bit is either zero or one. It's either light going <laughs> on or off. And quantum computers are based on qubits, where you have zero, one, or zero, zero, one at the same time, because you somehow look at the quantum nature of things in very, very simple terms. Because of the quantum effect and because you have this additional zero one altogether, which uses quantum effects, you can have exponential growth of computing power. That, that's, that's why quantum computers are uh, interesting. But at the same time, it comes with a cost because it's very hard to implement because in order to use those quantum effects, which are at the very small scale and are very unstable, those computers look completely different. They basically look like giant tubes, which are attached to the, to the ceiling. You have to make them very, very cold, like absolute zero temperature almost in Kelvins, and also cut off from the gravitational waves. If you are able to stabilize those, then somehow you gain enormous computing power. And that's why it's very interesting to work on that. Now, in terms of the size, you obviously read about it in your textbooks. But when I started with computers, there were mainframe computers that took whole rooms before personal computers. Yeah. Is it possible then that your quantum computers that are now huge will one day become Small. I remember the revolution. It was a revolution. Somebody told me in 1983 when I was in England, oh, you know, there's going to be personal computers. I couldn't believe it. Nobody could believe it. So what do you think, Vitek? Is it possible that one day they're going to be smaller and we're going to have one quantum computer in my purse or you will have it in your pocket or in your watch? You can never say never, right? Um, although I think that probably this will not be really the case. Mostly, I would say there's a different emphasis on the end users, the applications, and the client as far as the quantum computers go. With personal computers, at the very beginning, there were just calculators, and we started scaling them and doing more and more complex calculations with them. And then eventually, we figured that it's possible to have them on a pers for personal use with our everyday tasks. With quantum computers, their applications are, I would say, more limited to four general areas, just cryptography, optimization, which is the area we are focusing on, simulations and chemistry on new materials, and also uh, machine learning. So 
most of the replications, I would say, are more industrial, uh-huh. uh, more for large companies. Uh, and at least for now, the shift isn't really towards making them uh, smaller and more, I would say, personal. So that's not the purpose of the exercise, right? You seem to be interested in this optimization, as you yourself said, right? And also, I looked at the applications and the areas that um, I found were transportation, generally mobility, finance, energy. Can you give us a very specific examples to show how these quantum computers can optimize solving real-life problems in some of these fields? Yeah, yeah. My, so my favorite example is uh, airlines and airplanes. So basically, if you imagine, um, if you're running a small airline and you're owning a 20 planes, then basically every day you have a very tight schedule of which plane go where, with how many passengers, what, what kind of cargo and stuff like that. But imagine that one of the planes is down, it's broken, and then you have to replace that. And you have very limited time for that. If you don't want to pay all the fees that uh, are imposed on you, for example, by EU, because, for example, if your passengers are waiting for more than four hours, then you have to pay some kind of amount for that. Then you're trying to replace that one plane, which is down, by another plane. And that also involves, like, contacting the crew to get the crew on the plane to fly to the given destination, uh, to pay for the fuel, to organize everything, and it's basically like a domino, meaning that uh, then you have to think how you replace the, 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 the second flight, and it goes on and on. And you have to make decisions very quickly. So mo- most of the time, even if you have only like 20, 30 planes, then basically the problem you're uh, trying to solve is very complicated. There are so many parameters that you have to think about that it's impossible to solve with current computers, at least within the time that you would like to solve them, meaning that you would like to have the answer for like what's the optimal solution within 15 minutes uh, and classical methods, so like brute forcing, trying to like look for every solution will take you hours, if not days, uh, depending on how much computing power you have and how big is the airline you, you're running. Uh, mm-hmm. So that's like a very specific problems that actually big airlines have. And for now, they're solving that by using people and uh, having those amazing guys at the company who actually have like 20 years of experience and been thinking live on trouble, problem troubleshooting and like what, can be, what, what would be the optimal solution. But it's very right. manual work right now. So, this is, so isn't it like logistics? It is logistics, yeah. It is the kind of the problem also that we uh, tackled at the Polish Post uh, here in Warsaw, which we did we did a pilot, and that was the ca- kind of the problem. A similar one was also with uh, route planning here in Warsaw. Yes. Quantum computers are terribly expensive, right? Like the, uh, when you were talking, Przemek, about a small airline that would need, you know, that would benefit from having that kind of computer. Um, isn't it too expensive for them to even think about it? Not really, because you don't have to buy one. You can just yeah. rent one, so access the, 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 it through the cloud, as uh, Ditek said before, uh, which means that you only use that for the particular computation you have to use. Because if you were to buy it, yeah, it's expensive because probably the price right now will start around $10 million per a single unit. And still, that doesn't count in the storage costs, the support, and stuff like that. So quantum computers, things like traffic control, and yeah, we would really be happy with that in, in, in Toronto. Toronto, yes. <laughs> Indeed, I, I yes. think so, because after our stay in Toronto, we noticed that yeah, traffic is not really... <laughs> no, I don't <laughs> think it's optimized. Right. We need you no, here. <laughs> Which brings us to the next question, obviously. You are expanding internationally, and I understand you're planning to go to Israel, Singapore, they you say later China, but for the time being, it's North America, and you're starting with us, with Toronto, which I heard was the quantum capital. So tell me about this Toronto involvement. You have an office here. When did you come? So we arrived in Toronto um, in July for the first time. We were invited here to take part in the Creative Destruction Lab Acceleration Program, um, which is affiliated with University of Toronto. They run an accelerator program called Quantum Machine Learning, dedicated for startups 
uh, decade to startups working on quantum programming, quantum software. Canada is one of the, I would say, leading countries um, in, in quantum computing. Um, there's a lot of research going on around this space. Uh, there are companies like D-Wave that have been founded here. There are also a lot of startups um, that are working on the software. So it's a great uh, place to be. And it's a great opportunity for us to be part of this ecosystem and also to kind of have access to, I would say, all this knowledge and all the other researchers that we can collaborate with and also have access to potential clients um, that are present in this market and in the United States, so kind of in North America in general. Are you planning yeah. more visiting? Oh, definitely. Be, yes? So right now we're incorporated in Canada, actually. Officially, we're like Canadian-Polish company. We're planning to be returning on a regular basis. There's more people. You have staff in Toronto. How does this work? So we do have one person in Toronto who, who will be here permanently um, doing business development with us starting from, from September. And then potentially in the future, we'll move some of our technical teams who work closely with the hardware manufacturers and kind of be part and present in the, here in, the, in, 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 in Canada. Um, but for now, most of our operations are, are, based in, are based in Poland as far as the R&D is concerned. And also kind of internationally, we travel a lot uh, to talk with clients and, and to do the business development. How does Poland itself compare to these most technologically advanced countries as far as your, your field is concerned? So I would say that quantum computing is still um, it's a new area all around the world. Um, so even in, in countries like the United States or Canada, there are problems with hiring people, there are problems with, the pe with having enough talent that has the right uh, background. What we see in Poland is that this field here is also very young, very fresh, but we feel that there's a very, very good, strong pool of, of uh, talented people in machine learning and artificial intelligence. So we feel there's a, a lot of potential in terms of the people and the talent that is available here. We want to build our, our R&D team and our strength will be basically in, in building talent and, and scaling here in Poland. Um, and that's definitely what we intend to do. And then for the business development, this will be more, this is more of an international effort. Yeah, so we're actually planning to have an office, like hiring more people also in Canada and, and around the world. It's, it's very important for the international growth. Well, listen, and your dream is, like, where do you want to be in 10 years? You, yourselves, your company. Well, we want to be the leaders uh, in the quantum computing and artificial intelligence globally. You're young, very gifted, full of ideas, and I'm sure you have a vision, as well as enough knowledge to be able to <sighs> sort of predict where this world is going. Yeah, I've just recently, maybe yesterday, read an article about the next 25 jobs that are gradually disappearing because of the development of, <laughs> of, of technology. And, you know, that's obviously where we're going. But I want you to tell me, where are we going? Where are we going to be in 10 years, 20 years? It, it, it's very hard to make predictions, actually. It's not because of the technology itself, but also there's a regulation side. So even with this... Even if it's possible to make mostly all of the jobs disappear, that might not happen because of the regulations. So, for example, take auto autonomous vehicles. So right now, already Uber is testing uh, fully automated cars. You just order an Uber, it comes. Already my friend had a situation like that in California, in the U.S., um, he ordered an Uber and just the empty car came. So, and there are like millions of drivers around the world. But... You don't see this transition into going into autonomous vehicles because of the regulations. So the regulations so, so that, are there to protect us humans. Exactly. So so uh, it, it's very hard to predict how it will all play out. I think you can do amazing things with technology. I, I don't see any limits right now. I'm, I'm very optimistic, by the way, so maybe that's why. But on the other side, you, you have regulations coming from governments, from different treaties, uh, international treaties. So, so that might be a limiting uh, point on that. Uh -huh. What do you say, Vitek? So I can make a prediction which is which kind of relates to my previous field of studies, which is law, <laughs> and also kind of relates to, to, uh, um, to what I'm doing now, which is more like artificial intelligence and quantum computing. Um, so I think that, or at least I hope so, that in the next 10 or 15 years, uh, we will be a lot less lawyers. And I think most of the legal jobs that are currently available in the world won't be needed in the next, I would say, probably 10 to 15 years.
to learn more about quantum computing as implemented by Bohr Technologies, please visit our website at mypodcast.com. Smacznego. We're here talking about our love for eating Polish. My name is Peter. And my name is Laura. And we wrote two heritage Polish cookbooks called Polish Classic Recipes and Polish Classic Desserts, where all the recipes have been handed down from previous generations. But updated for modern kitchens, so no more pinch of this or glass of that. Today, we're going to talk about small peach turnovers with our spin on a recipe that my mom loved to bake for our family as well as for company. They're easy to make and have bold flavors that everyone loves. When finished, they look a little bit like kolaczki, the classic Eastern European cookie. Peaches are very versatile fruit that work really well for baking, whether you're doing a cake, tarts, or some other pastry. And they're great on the grill, too. I just split them in half, remove the pit, brush them with a little oil, and throw them straight on a hot grill, just a couple of minutes on each side. When the grill marks appear, they're done. We just did some last night, which Laura sliced and put on a white pizza. The natural sweetness and soft texture of peaches works well with all types of dough, and the flavors are easily kicked up when dusted with cinnamon or drizzled with a bit of lemon juice. There are many varieties of peaches, so for baking, always ask for free stones or another variety that gives up its pit easily. To start, you'll need a half a pound of margarine or butter, sifted flour, yeast, vanilla extract, sour cream, and four ripe peaches that have been pitted and sliced thinly, but not peeled. You'll need some cinnamon, granulated sugar for the insides, plus confectioner sugar for the tops. That's really not a lot of ingredients. So first cut the margarine or butter into the flour with a knife and rub it in well with your fingertips. Add the yeast, vanilla, and sour cream to the flour. Knead the dough for a few minutes and shape it into a ball. If you have a standing mixer with dough hooks, that'll make this job much easier. Next, roll out the dough into a very thin square, about an eighth of an inch or less. Getting it this thin is important. Using a cookie cutter or knife tip, cut the dough into 4-inch by 4-inch rectangles. You should get about 30 rectangles. Place one or two peach slices onto each rectangle. Sprinkle with granulated sugar and cinnamon. Then lift the two opposite ends of the rectangle. Fold them over the peach and press the two top corners together to seal them. Just those two top corners. Gently transfer the turnovers to a greased cookie sheet so that they don't touch. Bake them at 375 degrees Fahrenheit for about 40 minutes or until golden. Take them out of the oven and immediately dust generously with the confectioner's sugar. They're best served warm, and if you want to go crazy, a scoop of vanilla ice cream would be divine. And by the way, you can make these turnovers with tart apples, plums, or just about any fruit that grows on a tree. The full recipe for these turnovers and information about our heritage cookbooks is on our website, www.polishclassiccooking.com. Just scroll down to the article posted on July 14, 2012. Smacznego! Wow, that sounds fantastic. Laura's working on a on a delicious sour plum tart that's in the oven as we speak. That's a Oh, my God. Experiment. Can you not send me some? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how it's going to turn out, Margaret. Oh, but. come on, Laura. I mean, I can't the imagine plum, you doing anything that wouldn't taste the good. Plums, the plums turned out to be pretty sour. Yeah. So, so, so oh, really? It's, uh-huh. it's Italian plums. You've been listening to the 57th episode of Polcast. Polcast is created, recorded, and produced in Toronto by Małgorzata Bonikowska 
and Tomek Kniat. For a lot of additional information, multimedia, links, please visit our website at mypodcast.com. And while you're there, please share your comments, your reactions, and suggest ideas. If you know of any interesting story that we should cover on our podcast, please let us know. Please remember about our crowdfunding campaign. Like all other podcasts, we do count and depend on our listeners, on you. As we said before, what is free for you to listen to is not free for us to make. So, please, support podcast. Go to mypodcast.com slash support and make your pledge. If you like what you heard, please share it with your friends. And don't forget to rate this episode on your favorite podcast app. And we leave you with Rebecca, a tango by Zygmunt Białostocki, one of the most popular songs of nightclubs, coffee houses and restaurants across Warsaw between the wars. You will hear a lot of Jewish motifs in this tango, sung here by Olga Mileszczuk, whom you met in this episode. It was performed at the Lula Lunch at the Ashkenaz Festival in Toronto. Thank you for listening to Polcast. Bye!